grab your Bible and go to Romans chapter 6. Romans 6 is where we're going to be this morning, continuing this amazing letter. And if you're new with us, I'll tell you again about our group. We're the high school ministry here at Grace Community Church. We meet like this every Sunday morning, second hour. We typically meet on Wednesday nights as well in regional Bible studies. This week we're taking it off for Thanksgiving. Uh, But you're also in luck because this book that we're reading is really the the message of the gospel. It's the good news. It's how people can be made right with a holy God. And if you've placed your trust in Jesus, what does that mean? What kind of confidence do you have? And what does that mean for the future? And this morning, we're going to look at Romans 6, Romans 6, 1 to 14. And I'm going to read the passage. And part of the reason why we do that um, is really because nothing that I say up here matters unless it can be backed up by Scripture. Uh, The reason I like to read the passage is because I want you to hear God's word, and so that you know everything that comes afterwards is me trying to explain what's happening here, and none of it originates with me. So let's do that. Romans chapter 6, this is the word of the Lord, and we could read it together. Starting in verse 1, Apostle Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin, still live in it. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And so, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This is God's very word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us this morning to understand your word, to understand what we often refer to as the life-changing power of the gospel, that the truth of the gospel is something that we first understand, but that it then provides fruit in our life. Lord, help us to rightly understand and live out the truth of who you are this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. It's Thanksgiving week. And this is one of the two times of year that people will typically spend uh, extended time with family, either during Thanksgiving or during Christmas. And I'm sure all of you have different traditions, things that you do with your family during this time. 
our family, and you raise your hand if your family's like this, whenever we get together, we end up playing an excessive amount of board games. Anyone else hit the board games really hard during Christmas? Just us? Just that one hand. That's good. That's good. And the part of the reason why is because there's so, or, or just other games, card games, uh, for simple things, etc. Um, one of the reasons why maybe sometimes games are hard is there are some games that are really easy to play, and there are some games that are a little more uh, difficult, divisive. And one of those games you've played before, maybe you've tried to play before, is Monopoly. Has anyone ever tried to play Monopoly with your family? And has it ever gone well? You know, has it ever ended without someone just like... You know, and, it's, and it's the nature of the game. Monopoly is an evil game. Uh, what you're going to do is you're going to squeeze the financial life out of everyone. That's your job. So Jude and I tried to play Monopoly Junior two weeks ago. And Monopoly Junior is really fun because instead of like Boardwalk Avenue, it's like, oh, the cotton candy machine. And he lands on the cotton candy machine that I own. He goes, Dad, can I not pay? And I go, son, I've invested so much money into this cotton candy. If I start giving you handouts, soon I have to give everyone handouts. So hand over that two bucks, buddy, because all that you have will be mine. Right? That's, that's how Monopoly works. It's not the uh, most friendly game in the world. One of the nicest things in Monopoly, though one of the things that gives you a little bit of breathing room, is the get-out-of-jail-free card. You just feel like, sweet, at least I, I know I, I uh, can get some freedom here, some relief, etc. Here's my question I've always thought. What if there was an actual, like, for real life, get-out-of-jail-free card? Like, like, what if you had this thing in your back pocket that if you got in trouble with the police, you could pull this out, no consequences, no going to jail? My question to you is, how would you use it? How, what, what would you use it for? Or would you even use it? Now, let, before we start passing it around and get into like, the darkness that exists in this room, the reason I bring that up is it, strangely enough, relates to our passage this morning. The question is this, if I have been forgiven, does that give me a sort of spiritual get-out-of-jail-free card? Last week, we looked at Romans chapter 5. We talked about in Romans 5 how everyone is either in Adam or in Christ. And I was explaining it to Jude this week, and I think I drew a picture. So this is terrible art, but I think it helps. So take a look. Look at that. Aw, so there we go. So I drew this picture, top one. Everyone is either in Adam, which brings about sin or death or judgment, or everyone's in Jesus, and I drew Jesus with a beard because that's what he's supposed to have. And, you know, it brings either then grace and then life, that's an empty tomb. And then uh, I said check mark, like you're good, righteousness. And because of that, sin used to reign, but now grace reigns all the more. That's a crown. Okay, turn that off because that's really bad drawing. So... That's, that's what we looked at last week. We looked at like you are either in Adam or in Jesus. No middle room. And if you're in Jesus, grace doesn't just cancel out sin. Grace reigns over sin. And so as sin abounds in your life, grace abounds all the more. The favor of God, the blessing of God abounds all the more. Which leads then to an important question. And it's the question Paul brings up in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Can I sin? Because if God has promised me grace, then isn't he obligated to forgive me? You've thought about this before. You have. It's entered your mind. 
There's been a temptation to sin uh, either by looking at something or saying something or acting in a way towards someone that's not appropriate. And you've thought, okay, I could do this. I know it's not okay, but I also know that God will forgive me, right? We've heard this. And so the question is, is that allowed then? Can I get away with sin if I know God is going to forgive me anyway? It's the question this morning. I think it's a very realistic question. I think, it, again, this just shows how uh, obviously the Bible is with, uh, obviously familiar the Bible is with the human heart. What's Paul's response? Verse 2, it says, by no means. In the Greek, may it never be. A strong no. No, this cannot be. Absolutely not. There is no get a spiritual get-out-of-jail-free card. This cannot happen. And the question we have to ask, we know that already, right? We know that's wrong. We know there's no way that I could just go through life as if I could sin as much as I want because I'll be forgiven anyway. But the question this morning is, why not? Why not? Why isn't that the case? Now listen, you need to have an answer for that. You need to have an answer for that for your own heart when your heart is trying to remind you that forgiveness will be easy. You need to have an answer for that that's uh, mature, that's thoughtful, that actually makes sense. You remember you when you were little kids and you, know, you would ask your mom, your mom and dad would tell you to do something and that you would say, but why? Or but why not? Mom, dad, why can't I have another piece of chocolate? tonight. And your parents would say something, well, if you have too much chocolate, your teeth would fall out. And you go, yeah, you're right. That's really bad. I love my teeth. As you get older, though, you begin to realize like, well, one piece of chocolate's not going to do the damage every single night. I'm going to brush my teeth after. In fact, back then I had baby teeth. All those teeth ended up falling out anyway. And so, right. And so as you get older, you realize the logic didn't make sense. And therefore, maybe you don't uh, believe that uh, truth anymore. Right? That, that's what I want you to know as Christians. I, I don't want you just, uh, you know, as teenagers, I, I go, well, just don't do it uh, because it'll be bad for you. Well, why is it bad for me? How do I know it's bad for me? You notice also what Paul doesn't do here. Paul doesn't just say, well, don't sin anymore after you've been forgiven. Why? Well, because God says so. He doesn't just give you the I've said so. Your parents have done that, and it's true. You should submit to your parents because I said so. But Paul doesn't do that here. In fact, Paul, even into this point of the book, has not given a single command yet. Do you notice that? Everything so far has been about the reality of the gospel. It's about us understanding salvation. But no commands have been given forth from Paul, given forth by God through Paul. So what's Paul do? He, we need a good answer for this question. Why I can't just sin as much as I want because I know I'll be forgiven. And Paul gives a glorious answer. He gives us reasons why you, Christian, can't just say, well, if I'm under grace, then I could do whatever I want. And we get instructions. I want to give you this morning three reasons. Three reasons why if you're a Christian, and why, as we talked about last week, if you're under the reign of grace, if grace dominates your life, is grace is not equal to but greater than your sin, why you can't just say, I guess that makes me someone who could do whatever sin sounds good for me. Three reasons. Here's the first one. Number one, your first baptism. Your first baptism. Now, I have up there this morning uh, two asterisks. I, I have those up there because this is not true for all people. Uh, this is only going to relate to believers. And so this morning, if you're not a Christian, Paul's reasonings don't necessarily apply to you. That being said, I want you to see as we go through this passage, I'll bring it up, 
how good the offer of the gospel is and how good God is and why you shouldn't just turn to a religion. You should turn to this God who sent his son to save sinners and why he offers freedom and and a better life this morning. We'll see that as we go through. But for now, we're talking just about believers as we look at this text. That's Paul's understanding. And the first reason why you can't just live however you want is because your first baptism. Let's follow the argument here. Verse 2. By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? That is Paul's thesis statement of this section. All right, that's what he's saying. We who are dead to sin can no longer live in sin. He's going to go on to explain and define what that means. And what does that mean, that we're dead to sin? One of the words that gets repeated here, you saw it as we read through it. We find it in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus? We're baptized into his death. Verse 4. We are buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. The word that Paul is using to describe the Christian who's trusted in Jesus is baptism. They've been baptized. What does that mean? We were baptized into him. Is that talking about my water baptism? When I was uh, baptized under the water and pulled back up, is that what Paul is talking? That's what baptism usually does mean. What's helpful to know is that in the Greek, the word baptism, to baptize, just means to immerse. To, to put something under the water uh, is the idea when they use the word baptism. You baptize someone by immersing them into water. And so what Paul is saying is you have been immersed into Christ. Now, again, it's confusing for us because whenever, whenever we think baptism, we think Sunday nights here at Grace, uh, darkened lighting with spotlights, white robes, etc. And is that what Paul's talking about? Here's what he's saying. When you were baptized, remember that Sunday night a couple years after you got saved at camp and you got baptized? That's when this happened. Is that what Paul's saying? No, it's not what he's saying. It's because the word baptism can mean water baptism. It also has symbolic usage. has the idea of being connected to, associated with, united with. So think about the way you've used it symbolically. So in a, in a month and a half, uh, you're uh, going to get some Christmas presents. And some of you are book people. You love books. And your parents are going to get you this book that you've been wanting. And you're going to, what, immerse yourself in that book. That does not mean you put yourself, like, through the book into water somehow. Or go into the pages. What it means, like, you're absorbed with it. It's, uh, it's filling up all your thinking. You're, you're just so focused on this book, you, you've immersed yourself in the topic. The other way sometimes we've used the, the word immerse is the idea with like hobbies, uh, practices, types of uh, music. Some people immerse themselves in politics. Others immerse themselves into video games. Others immerse themselves with music or with a certain kind of band. And what happens then? It's not just that that thing begins filling your time but you become associated with those people, right? Some of you have immersed yourself so much into video games that when someone says, you know, gamers do this, you go, what? Oh yeah, he's talking about me. I'm part of that group, right? I am a gamer because of how much time I've been devoted to that. There's a, there's a union with that group. You've joined those people. Well, that's what it means to be immersed into Christ. It's to be united with Christ, You've been baptized into Christ. You've been joined with him. Remember last chapter, Romans chapter 5, talked about Adam 
the first Adam, who was Adam, and the second Adam, Jesus, that you are either with the first Adam or you are united with the second Adam. Well, now you have been baptized. You've been transferred from this group who's associated with death and sin and judgment into the second group united with Christ. In fact, verse 5 says that. Look at verse 5. It says, for if we have been united with him. That's the idea here. So you've been united with Jesus, with his life. His life and your life connected. And now you start asking, well, what in what way though? In what way have they been connected? Let's read verse three again. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. Verse five, for if we have been united with him in a death like his... So how, you've been, how have you been united to Jesus if you've trusted in Jesus? Well, his death has led to your death. He died, you died. You both died together. And you're not just associated with his death. You're also associated, verse 5 again, if we have been united in a death like his, we shall certainly, emphatic in the Greek, be united with him in a resurrection like his. And in verse 4, it says, in order that just as Christ or just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So both in Jesus' death and resurrection, we've been joined with him, which means just as Jesus died and rose again, if you are a believer, you have died, past tense, and you have been raised from the dead. You have had your own resurrection in him. What is this talking about, right? Because you're again, you're thinking, I've not physically died. What this is talking about is new life. This is talking about conversion. Again, verse five, you, that you might walk in newness of life. We are buried with him so that we die with him so that as he rose, we would rise with him, that we would walk in a new life. That's what this is explaining here. Friends, the the Christian message is a message of life change. It's not just a philosophical change. It's not just you've uh, taken a new outlook on things. It's you're a whole new person. You're different than who you used to be before. You're not the same person. You might look similar on the outside, but on the inside, you're different. Uh, Look at these verses I have here. So John chapter three, verse three, this was, this is predicted John three, verse three. Do I have that up here? Next slide. There we go. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, born from above, new life, second life, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Okay, if you want to be in the kingdom of God, you need to be born twice. You need to have a second life because your first life went so horribly bad. A new person, your own uh, after Christ. And then look at this next verse here, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so in the message of the gospel, God doesn't just change your circumstances. He doesn't just change your sentencing. He changes you. You are different. You are not the person you were before. Isn't that what we just sang about in the third song? I once was lost in darkest night. This is who I was. And now I've changed. 
I've become a new person from the inside out. That's, what's, that's also, by the way, that's what's replicated in baptism. Right? Have you ever wondered, like, why do we do baptism the way we do? It's, it's a picture. The old self dies and the new self is raised in newness of life. It's a picture, not of what's happening now, but what happened already at the moment that you were converted. And so can I sin? Let's go back to our original question. Can I sin and just, you know, I'm under grace, so God will forgive me? No. No, you can't. Because my salvation wasn't access to a spiritual magical eraser. Right? It doesn't give me an unlimited number of spiritual mulligans. I've become a new person. I don't live the way I used to. I'm, I'm different. I can't just say let's sin all the more because, well, I'm, I'm brand new. Friends, if that's you, what's so encouraging for me is being the high school pastor is going to hear so many testimonies like this that's true for you. Right? Hearing from your parents going, this is not the same kid I dropped off at summer camp. Now, this is not the same young man, young lady that started going to Bible study being a semester. They've become a totally new person. Yeah, we still sin, and we'll talk about it in a second, but you're new and you're different. And there's a desire now to obey. There's a newness and a freshness of life. Oh, student, if that's true for you, I just ask as an application in this passage, have you been baptized? It's really interesting, right? Baptism, we have this thing sometimes where we go, well, I need to be good enough to get baptized. Friends, your first baptism, your spiritual baptism, had nothing to do with you being good enough. But you were immersed in Christ and changed. You became a new person. If that's already true spiritually, you should obey Jesus and proclaim that that's happened to you through physical demonstration as well. It's a a clear command in Scripture, something we should be excited about to do. At the same time, listen to this. If you're not a Christian, here's what's so good about the gospel. It offers you a new life. It offers you a refresh. It offers you a blank slate and a hopeful outlook. That God will not just change your circumstances. He will change you. Some of you know you need this change. Some of you are curious as we talk about this new life. You're like, can you explain that even more? What does that mean? What does that look like? Right? Because I've known a lot of these people. I've gone to church with a lot of these people, and they said they got saved, but they still dressed the same, and they still like the same you know, dorky movies and stuff. And so what is different? What do you mean? What, what has changed? There's not a, a ton of this dramatic change. What does it look like? Well, let's take a look at number two. Number two, here's the second reason why. Again, your, your word number two is your first death. Your first death. So your first baptism and your, again, talking about Christians, your first death. You have been baptized into Christ's death, the word says. Verse 6. Sorry, verse 5 says, If we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him. That there was an old nature that died with Jesus crucified with him. And we need to ask again, what does that mean, the old self crucified with him? So again, none of us have been physically crucified in here. So what is Paul talking about? He's talking about the old self. He's talking about the old man. He's talking about the old person who prior to conversion was in Adam. 
And you remember what the results were of Adam. Remember, sin entered the world through one man. So because of Adam, everybody dies. Because of Adam, everyone's guilty. But because of Adam, everyone sins. Everyone is under, we read this word, the reign of sin. Everyone is dominated by sin. We read in Romans 5, verse 12, death spread to all men because all sinned. Take a look at Romans 3. Let's, let's explore this again. We're looking at this old man now. Romans 3, verse 9. It says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Under sin. The idea there is dominion. Sin is calling the shots. Sin is the one who rules your life. Ephesians chapter 2 says that we were dead in our sins. Okay, we, we had no spiritual life, but because of sin, we were spiritually dead. And what did that mean in Ephesians 2? It means you walked just like the world, you lived just like the world, and you did it because you wanted to live like them. Sin ruled and reigned in your life. There was nothing getting in sin's way of doing whatever it wanted in your life. You were just walking in sin all the time. In fact, here, but we can go back now to Romans 6. Romans 6. In fact, here, Paul uses stronger language. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer, now here's our old self, be enslaved to sin. The word that's used there, slaves. Isn't it funny how the world views the Bible as kind of prudish and restrictive? And the world says, we live in freedom. Look at me. Look at you. You got to go to church on Sunday. You have to say no to things that look good now. I get to live however I want. I get to do as I please. I am the master of my own ship. You, uh, you submit to another. Scripture says that's not true. In fact, Jesus says it. Take a look at John 8, 34. I have it on the screen. John 8, 34. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That is, sin is more than just something in your life. Sin is a task master. Sin rules your life. And it does so in destructive ways. Right? What does it do? Right? How much of your life is difficult because of sin? That selfishness, that putting self ahead of others has caused a difficulty, strife, tension. Oh, how many of you have rough family situations? Have family situations you're dreading this week purely because of hate and malice and the me first attitude that our culture celebrates, yet it never seems to provide what it offers? How many of you have guilt and embarrassment? Things that you're afraid to talk to your parents about or your small group leader about because sin promised you something and ended up not delivering on. That's the kind of taskmaster sin is. Sin enslaves and dominates and provides no way out, never gives the happiness that it advertises. 
But for the believer, here's what it says. Again, Romans 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified. That is, dead. The old self that was a slave to sin is now dead and is now, according to the language of verse 4, buried with him. That old self died. And we have to ask, what does that mean? Does that mean there's, there's no more sin in our life? Does that mean when someone becomes a Christian, they don't sin anymore? No, we, we still fall short. But here's what it means. This is so important, student. Listen to this. If you're a Christian and you have faith in Christ, sin no longer has dominion over you. You don't have to obey sin. Beforehand, you had no choice but to obey those fleshly impulses that came from within your own heart. But now you don't have to listen. Sin doesn't have to dominate anymore. Not because of, you know, your uh, discipline, you've worked it out, but because you died, that old self died with Christ and because you're united with him, that old nature died as well. Verse 10, for the death he died, he died to sin. And Jesus dying to sin, what, did Jesus sin? No, of course not. But he lived in the realm that was dominated by sin. We know that because he died. And yet, he no longer has to let it reign over him. In the same way, you are no longer dominated by sin. It is no longer master for you. Again, verse 6, the old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 7, for the one who has died has been set free from sin. So if you're a Christian, good news this morning. Sin no longer dominates you. It's no longer master over you. You are under no obligation to obey. When you are tempted, and I could just leave it at that because I know there are numerous ways which the people in this room are tempted by sin. If you are, when you are tempted, if you are in Christ, you legitimately have no obligation to obey that. There is no dominion that sin has, no foothold that it has in your life. Verse 6 there at the end, uh, be brought to nothing is, is a strong word. It's the word for abolished. You have been, according to verse 7, set free from sin. And so in a sense, you're all kind of like spiritual uh, Pinocchios. You're not quite yet a real full human the way you're supposed to be, but there are no strings of sin that holds you down. You have been set free from it. How many of you have ever had a teacher who was just like a, like a taskmaster? Like he or she was mean, she was hardcore. Maybe this is an AP teacher. Mine, I won't say her name, but she was a third grade teacher and she was just like harsh. Anyone ever had a teacher that's just like harsh? You were like scared of class and you were nervous anytime there were instructions because you're like, this isn't about me doing well. This is about me just not messing up. Or maybe you've had a coach like this as well. I remember my teacher, and I remember one time we got in trouble and like she like grabbed me and the other boy's wrist her hands were cold as ice. That's when I knew, yep, evil incarnate. That was who she was. You've had those teachers. Any of you, like a couple years after having those teachers, you've been shopping at Target, you see them there, right? Are you as afraid of them 
when you see them in Target as you were when you were in their class? Not really, right? Why is that? Because you know that since you've exited their class, they no longer have any binding authority over you. That student is your relationship with sin if you're in Christ. It has no claim on you. It has no authority over you. It does not master you anymore. And so, yes, we fall short, but not because we're trapped in sin. We've been freed. I don't have to listen. You don't have to listen. Because you've been freed. Freed to what? What is this freedom? Well, this freedom is related to the resurrection, right? Verse 5, again, we will certainly be resurrected with him, united in his resurrection. What is this resurrection? It's freedom. Verse 7, it says, you've been set free. Free to what? Free to obey. You now can obey. Verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Right? We get to live with him and live like him. What is this living? Well, let's look at what it was for Jesus. Verse 10, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. And so you now have been given the freedom not to do what you just want. You're free to obey, free to please God, free to do the very thing that you couldn't do in your sin, but now you can do because you've been freed from sin. That in the Son, you can actually obey God as a son and as your real father. You've been given freedom, a new life, and it's permanent, right? The length of this is permanent. Okay, look at this, verse nine. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again, right? Jesus doesn't need to come and die all the time to free us again and again and again. That's what's so offensive, by the way, about the Catholic teaching that, the, uh, that communion is Jesus being put to death every single time. It's his literal body that has to die again and again and again. That's not true because he died, according to verse 10, once for all. He died once for all. He never has to die again. And so in one sense, that's good news. Why? Because if we've trusted in him, our sin is paid for. He's the one-time sacrifice that covers all our sins from the past and covers all our sins from the future. That's good news for you, by the way who people maybe in this room don't know your past. Christ does know your past and can pay for your sins if you come to him and ask for forgiveness and will pay for all the sins you'd commit in the future. But it's not, that's not the only blessing of that it was a one-time sacrifice. Because he died once and only died once, not only is that forgiveness permanent, that freedom is permanent. The freedom from sin, though we do not experience it yet in glorification, sin is not your master in this life. And that is good news. Let me say that again. If you're not a Christian this morning, Jesus doesn't just help you with the penalty. The penalty we should get for sin is severe. It's the wrath of God for rebelling against God. But Jesus also offers freedom. Don't you want freedom from your sin? Aren't you tired of your mouth ruining every single friendship? Aren't you tired of the jealousy that makes all your relationships just fake and phony? 
You think it's the group that you're with, so you continue to bounce around group to group to group, and yet and what you find is it's actually your sin remains the same and tarnishes everything. Aren't you sick of that me-first attitude that never satisfies? Some of you that are here this morning, the, the world makes sexual pleasure seem like the pinnacle of all life. That if I just had sexual freedom as much as I wanted, I'd be happy. Some of you in here know that's a lie. You know it's a lie because it's ruined your life. You know it's a lie because that journey has split your home. You know it's fool's gold, and yet you find yourself walking in the very sin, unable to get out of the very sin you know is killing you. Jesus says, whoever the Son sets free is free indeed. You don't have to walk in this anymore. I can wipe the slate clean, and I can change you so the future looks good as well. If you're here and you are a Christian, that's who you are in Christ. You are free from sin. You have been freed from the bondage that you once walked in. Because the old you died. I went to a funeral yesterday on campus of a, of a lady that worked at our church. A lot of people showed up. It was a sweet time. It was an encouraging funeral. It is always sad, right? What is sad about the funeral? Maybe what's sad is, you know, other people feel sad, or I feel sad too. I think what's sad about a funeral is what? Finality. There's something that's wrong that, well, maybe can't totally be reversed. That's sad for funerals that we attend. Friends, it's good news for your spiritual funeral. The old you died. He or she is not coming back if you're in Christ. Buried. Gone forever. And that little bit of sin that still exists will ultimately go on in glorification, which we'll talk about in Romans 8. But until then, you do not need to be dominated by the old you. That person is gone. So why can't we live as we want? Why can't we just, uh, well, I shouldn't say live as we want because we want to obey, but that's next week. Uh, Why don't we just sin as much as we want? Well, it's related to your first baptism. You're united with Christ. You have a new life. What is that new life? It has to do with your first death. You died spiritually. The old you died, you were raised in newness of life, which prefigures our second death and will die physically and be raised spiritually. Let's finally look at a third first. Why can't I just sin as much as I want if I'm under grace? Number three is Paul's first commands. Paul's first commands. I told you you hadn't had any commands in this uh, book at all. It's not till chapter 6, verse 11, that we get the very first commands of Paul. And there, uh, there's four of them, really. I'm going to summarize it in two parts. It's verse 11, where he says, So you must consider yourselves to be dead of sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 12, uh, let not sin reign. Verse 13, do not present. And then halfway, verse 13, but present. Present. So what are these uh, commands? What does Paul want you to do? What's the so what? You're talking about Jesus died, rose from the dead. My old self died. I've been raised in newness of life. How does it affect me today? How does it affect me today? Because I'm going to leave here, and there's going to be all sorts of friends of mine that want to gossip. There's going to be all sorts of advertisements on the internet that tell me it's about me. My flesh is going to look at my computer or my phone, and I know what's right and know what's wrong. So how does this play out and what's going to happen this week? 
When I'm sleeping in and everything seems like the flesh can have whatever it wants. Let me tell you what Paul wants you to do. Two things. First, he wants you to remember your identity. He wants you to remember your identity. What does he mean by this? Verse 11. You also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. You must consider. What does that mean? Consider your parents. You need to be more considerate. Is that what, what is this talking about? That's not the way that this is being used here. The word here is logizomai. It's a word for accounting. It has to do with categorizing, right? That, that's what we talked about, when, uh, talked about when it said that God considered his faith as righteousness, that Paul saw the faith of Abraham, or sorry, that God saw the faith of Abraham and counted it, considered it, categorized it as righteous. What Paul is telling you has to do with your thinking, it has to do with how you think. It has to do with your mindset as you go about the day. Here's the mindset that he wants. He wants you to consider to categorize yourself as dead to sin. That's so interesting that Paul has to command you saying, these things are true. Now you need to remember them. You need to remember that you're dead to sin. You need to remember that that old self, that all that they could do with sin is gone. High school student, you are not just a victim, a passenger to whatever your emotions and passions want to do. Listen to your heart is a lie. That's not who you are. You are not someone who just says, well, I'm just kind of being dragged along by whatever my, my innards want to do. No, no, no. You, that old self is dead and you need to know it in your mind. You need to think on it. You need to believe this. Now, this isn't wishful thinking, nor is this just the power of positive thinking. It doesn't become true. Well, if I think about long enough, I'm dead to sin, I'm dead to sin. Then I will be dead to sin. Just as like, you know, well, if I think about myself as rich, I'll be rich. If I think about myself as thin, I'll be thin, right? That's not what this is. You are dead to sin as a Christian, whether you are remembering it or not. Paul is saying, remember it, consider it. Don't go through life forgetting that you've already had a funeral. Remember, consider yourself dead to sin. I think that's so important for two different sorts of applications. One has to do with what I will call the quote-unquote cool real Christians. There is a movement. They've existed when I was in high school. They exist now. There are the real Christians. And the real Christians, what they do is they say, yeah, I'm a Christian because I go to church. I'm not like one of those Christians. Like, yeah, sometimes we say some things that skirt the line. And we're okay with watching some things because, you know, those fake holy Christians live like that. But we're the real ones who indulge a little bit. Paul says that's ridiculous. That, that is not considering yourself dead to sin. It makes more sense that someone who's married would act like they're single than someone who's died to sin act like they could still live in it. That's stupid, right? It's foolish thinking. And yet there's so many Christians who are like prudish. I'm going to find a way to be cool in sin and not be lame, though I'm still a Christian. Paul says, don't think like that. You're fooling yourself. Count yourself as dead to sin. It does not need to live in your life anymore. It's not a promise of perfection, but it is a promise that you will not be dominated by it. I think the other application with that, though, is for those in here 
who feel like, yeah, but Josh, that sin has such a foothold in my life. Like, I've just tried, but my mouth, I can't control it. And, and my, my envy is just awful. And my lust, I would be so ashamed if people knew about the lust in my life. And I know it says that it's dead, but it seems like it's very much alive. There's a lot of ways that I could advise you if you find yourself in one of those situations. There's ways to pursue holiness. There's practices to pursue righteousness. Hebrews 13 talks about pursuing righteousness. But it starts with the reality that that sin is dead. It starts with knowing not what you have conjured up the courage to say, but what God has promised. That old self is dead. And I can walk in obedience even in that sin because sin has no dominion in my life in Christ. If I've been united in Jesus, it's true for me. We've seen that sometimes, right? People who've been in, a, in an abusive relationship, you wonder like, why do you keep going back to that person? Right? You're, you're free from them. You can go away. Oh, spiritually, the same is true. If you're freed in Christ, you do not have to walk in the dominion of that sin anymore. Here's the second that Paul wants you to do. Paul's second command is this, be your identity. Be your identity. It's so funny that today... The world talks about live your truth. Be who you are, right? Whoever you are on the inside, whoever you are when it comes to your gender, whoever you are sexually, whoever you are to your identity, you be who you are. And their thinking is totally wrong because their identity is off, and yet they outdo us in being who you are. Because what Paul's commands are is be who you are. You are dead to sin, so be dead to sin. Verse 12 Let not sin reign in your mortal body. Or verse 13, do not present your members. It's the parts of your body. Do not use this body that God's given you as instruments for unrighteousness. Verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you. Student, we as Christians do not walk in sin. We run from sin. We do not allow ourselves uh, to be ruled by that from which we were freed. You've been freed from it. Therefore, Paul says, walk in holiness. Jesus died to pay the penalty and free you from that sin. Why would you go back to the very sin for which Jesus died to free you from Rather, I love this. This is if, if you've got a, a verse to meditate on this week for Thanksgiving, I think Romans 6, 11 to 14 is a really strong candidate. It, it has been so helpful for me as I thought about this, and I know it will be encouraging for you. Verse 13 says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but, on the contrast, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. What I love about this passage 
is there's no middle ground. There's no free agency, right? In sports, there's players that play for teams, and then they become free agents. They're kind of not associated with anybody, and then they get to decide who to link up with. Biblically, there's no spiritual free agency. You're either one camp or the other. I want you to look at two words there. Present. Present. Romans 12, Paul's going to talk about presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice. It means to offer up. So here's the question. Every single day, do I offer myself, let's use the biblical language here, do I offer myself to sin or do I present, do I offer myself to God? Do I, with my actions, with my screen time, with my conversations, do I present myself to sin as my master today? Or do I present myself to God as my master? Do I present my members, my hands, my bodies, my thoughts, my lips? Do I present them as instruments? The word there for instruments is like the word for weapons. Right, a weapon doesn't do what it wants to do. A weapon is in the hand of another, right? You know, if I if there was a gun right here, I'm hoping it just wouldn't just shoot off on its own unless someone did anyway. Alec Ball, bad, bad illustration. Okay, so the question is who who do you belong to? So so do I present my members as if my body belongs to sin or as if it belongs to God? How foolish would it be for us who have been freed from sin, who have been freed to obey God, say, today I offer myself to you, sin. Do with me as you please. The lie that autonomy tells us, that we get to make our own decisions and be captains of our own souls. Student, what are you doing with your life? How are you presenting yourself? Guys, we need to be holy because we've been made holy. We walk in obedience because we've been freed to obey. I just ask you this. Is that true in your life? Do you find yourself presenting yourself to God as uh, to do righteousness? Or do you find yourself presenting your body every day and handing it over to sin. Maybe the reason why some of you seem so dominated by sin, I know I'm going on a limb here, but maybe the reason you seem dominated by sin is because you are. And what you need is for God to cleanse you. You need is God to forgive you for your sin and then to change you from the inside out. And that's the gospel, friends. That's what God will do in Christ. Because Jesus died on the cross, our sins have been forgiven. And if Jesus has died on the cross for our sins, are we going to really present ourselves back to sin as its instrument? Some of you thinking, Josh, I feel really guilty about my sin because of this. Yes, it should drive us to say, I need to obey. I have minimized sin as a bad habit, not something that I've been freed from. If you've been freed from sin, you walk in obedience. January 1st, 18 
63 was the date of Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. It was the day he declared that all slaves in the United States would be made free. However, however, afterwards, slavery continued to exist because not every part of the country um, recognized it. It was as Union troops spread out through the South that they enforced the proclamation to end slavery. Texas was the last holdout. Uh, General Order Number 3 came from, uh, from General Gordon Granger on June 19, 1868. That's when it came to Texas. It's the day that's for a long time now been referred to as Juneteenth. It's June 19th. It's when the slavery that was promised was actually realized. Obviously a huge celebration on that day. Many who had heard about the freedom that was coming now actually got to experience it. How strange would it be if there was freedom promised, freedom realized, and those very people then decided, you know what? I want to go back to slavery. It is more strange that sinners who have been forgiven by God, who had freedom promised in the gospel, who have enjoyed that freedom in conversion, it's more strange if they then decide, let's go back to the slavery of sin. Student, sin's punishment has been absorbed by Christ. Its power broken by Christ, dead with Christ. You have been raised in new life in Christ. Let us walk in the freedom, the freedom to obey the God that loved us and save us. Let us walk in the very freedom that Christ has provided. I pray, Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the truth of the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would help us to live holy lives. God, we do not need to let sin dominate us anymore. Lord, that is such good news that there's, there's no sin in our life that, that has unbreakable power over us. And so we can walk in holiness. We can walk in nearness to you. We can walk in a way that we present ourselves as instruments of righteousness to please you and to honor you. Lord, I pray you'd help us to do that. I I pray for those here who are enslaved to their sin. Lord, I I pray that you would help them to taste the pain of sin, that you'd help them to realize that sin will never, ever give them the satisfaction that they need, both in this life and eternity. Lord, I pray for those who are already there that you would draw them to the forgiveness and sweetness of freedom in Christ. That they might have... uh, the dominion that's over them broken, full forgiveness, and know the love of God that you've poured in our hearts by your spirit. Lord, we pray that we'd honor you this week, that we present ourselves as instruments of righteousness, seeking to please you. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.